Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Okay, well, it's summer. You know what we do in the summer, don't you? We go through the book of Revelation. So let's do it. So Father, we ask you in Jesus' name for your help to understand this book that you said that there's a blessing attached to it if we read it and take it serious. So I pray tonight, God, that you would give us grace as we study the book of Revelation to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us. In Jesus' name. The book of Revelation, this is session 71, when the war transfers to earth. Now, uh, what we did a few weeks ago, and it's important that uh, you kind of connect the dots, uh, we started <clears throat> really in uh, chapter 12, talking about the war that starts in heaven. Well, it starts there, but it doesn't end there. In fact, there's very little that we're given about the war in heaven, though we're confident it begins there. We are confident it is going on in, in heaven at uh, that point in the uh, end time uh, storyline. <clears throat> but then the war transitions out of heaven and comes to the earth. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight. So uh, Roman numeral one, if you're in the notes, is the fight in the heavens will come down. I should say will come down, not comes down. It's, yeah, will cometh. <clears throat> and uh, so let's just look at it here. Um, I gave you just kind of the, the clearest verse, not the only one, but the clearest verse says Revelation 12, 12, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Now this is right in the midst of the war in heaven. It says now he's being tossed out of heaven. He's coming to earth. Now, when Satan comes to earth, there are a lot of things that go along with that. And it would be, uh, I think, easy, and it's probably how we've looked at it in the past. If you've given any attention to uh, Revelation 12 and the thought process of the war, it's pretty easy to lump all of the things that are happening all together and just kind of call it one big bad mess. But to look at the details specifically, you actually see layers of the storyline, and that's what we're going to do tonight. First point I want to make, woe to the earth. There's going to be very real very felt impacts when this moment transitions. Woe to the earth. It's a very specific uh, warning that when this moment happens, it's going to get worse, worse on the planet. That when this moment occurs, there is going to be a season that is difficult. And I want to make this clear. What's being discussed here, the primary focal point the primary source of the pain related here is the fact of the devil being on the planet. That's the primary uh, source of the pain that's being described. Woe to you, earth, because the devil is now on you. He wasn't a minute ago, and this is really bad for you. So there's pain attached to the devil's presence, okay? Satan is filled with fury. We just saw that. He's filled with fury. This is now the second time Satan has lost a battle in heaven. Remember the first was the fall of Lucifer. This is now the second time. He is furious. And he is uh, ultra ticked. And he has come to the earth not on his own choosing. 
And so it's like, you know, he got kicked out of his favorite establishment and he is mad and, and he is going to take out all that fury wherever it is he happens to go next. Just so happens the next restaurant he walks into is Earth. His time is short. It says, you know, right there, I'm just you know, giving you the verse. He knows his time is short. We know that the time is three and a half years. That's a short period. I don't want to focus on the three and a half years right now. We'll touch on that a little bit later. I just want to focus on the short part. And I want you to think about if, you know, put your, yourself, I know this is an awful thing to ask you to do. Put yourself in Satan's shoes for a second. Imagine how ticked he is. And imagine if he had decades to vent his fury. He doesn't. He's got three and a half years. And he knows the time is short. So his rage is full on for three and a half years. This actually is a statement of the decimation, the problems, the pain, the ache that he's going to cause. Because he knows his time is short, he's going to vent all of it in a quick minute. So that's what the point of that is. He knows he's only got a short period of time. And again, I, I told you it's three and a half years. A conflict of pride and humility. We talked last week about the, uh, the interesting um, picture that we're given be of a war between a lamb and a dragon. And what I want to just touch on, just one more layer of this, is this final conflict, it's a battle between pride and humility. The dragon and the lamb. The people of the dragon will stand against God in full pride. But the people of the lamb, uh, but the people, let's see, standing against God in pride, yeah. And the people of the lamb who stand against the dragon will do so in humility even to the point of death. They're not, the ones that are fighting against the dragon, they're not fighting against him the same way <coughs> that he's fighting against them. Furthermore, the ones that are standing with the dragon are shaking their fists at God in pride and rebellion. But the ones that are standing with the Lord are standing with the Lord's purposes in humility and reverence and submission. I just want to give us Proverbs 16, 18 through 19, which probably will have never been truer in the history of ever then during the final fight, the final battle, the final three and a half years, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed. Man, is that the word? The church will be oppressed in that hour. Be lowly in spirit with the oppressed than to share the plunder with the proud, the plunder of the Antichrist kingdom and all the taking over of territories. I mean, I never saw Proverbs 16 as an uh, end times verse before this session, but man, I do now. And I'm sure it's, it's applicable in every other season of life, but man, that verse is prophesying about this battle between pride and humility. All right, now, before we start to look at the various aspects of the war, because that's what we're going to do in this session. Because remember, this is all about when the war gets transferred out of heaven and now the war is on the earth. Before we look at the dynamics of that war, I want to talk a little bit about Satan using real power to assert things, damage, uh, influence, authority on the earth. 
Now, I want to I get real clear here. I want to talk about, I want to paint a biblical reference point. I want to use Bible verses to talk about how Satan in the past has done stuff on the earth in a very real and tangible way like you do stuff on the earth. You pick up a chair. We would call that very uh, tactile, not a spiritual act, okay? When you pick up a chair, it's you with physical form doing something physical with a physical item. You pick it up. I want to talk about Satan doing physical stuff on the earth, not spiritual Satan doing spiritual evil. I want to talk about physical Satan doing physical things on the earth because that will help set the pace for what we're going to read here in a few minutes. First, Satan has the capacity to teleport on the earth. You want to think about that for a second. You want to think about what that means for what he can do and what he can't do, or at least what he's already done. We've already seen it. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Uh, Satan took Jesus and they like teleported. They went from point A to point B. And you know that that's the case because right after that account, it says it again, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. They're not going on a leisurely three-day walk together. Okay? Satan takes him. So not only does Satan have the ability to teleport, he has the ability to teleport others, even the Son of God. I just want us to see that. Because that is that makes his interactions on the earth all of a sudden far more real and, and bad, but not spiritual. I mean, we're not talking about spiritual bad, spiritual Satan. We're talking about physical Satan on the earth. He's standing here. He does a genie blink, whoop, and he teleports over there, okay? Next, he has authority over lightning. What? Yeah, the Lord said to Satan, this is Job 1, very well, everything he has is in your power. And then Satan went from the presence of the Lord, and a messenger came to Job and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, I know it's called the fire of God, but we just got done finding out who the source of this fire is. He got a hold of the fire of God. He got permission to borrow the fire of God for the afternoon. Somehow or the other, Satan is the one that sent this, this lightning, okay? So he's, he has this interaction with God, and God says, you know what? I will give you power. I will give you authority to do some things in the life of Job. And a minute later, we see what Satan is doing is he's sending pointed like arrows. He's sending lightning bolts that are specifically targeting Job's fields, Job's flocks, Job's people. And it's the work of Satan. So whatever that translates into, that's Satan doing physical stuff on the earth. He has authority over wind, very similarly. A little bit later in Job 1. Another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. So now we've got Satan <coughs> impacting wind 
You don't want to just think of it as like Satan is, a, is able to make wind stir up. You want to think about this almost like a tornado. And the reason I say the word tornado isn't because I'm trying to make a point that what happened in Job 1 was a tornado. I don't think it was. But when you think about a tornado, here's what you're thinking about. High-powered wind in a very concentrated area. That's what's happening with Satan's authority in this. He's sending wind. It's not like he just picked up all the wind on the whole earth and now it's just random acts of wind. He's pointing. He's like going, wind, go strike that house. And it does. All right, so I want us to see that. He has influence over invading forces. We see just uh, also in Job 1, messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing, the donkey, donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them, and they put your servants to the sword. 117 says similarly, another messenger came and said the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them, and they put your servants to the sword. Just want us to see this. These are now raiding parties from two different nations that were stirred up right then for specific purpose to attack that guy by Satan. These are specific acts that he did. Well, the reason I want us to have all that real clear is because when we read Revelation 12, 15 through 16, we need to be picturing the authority of Satan to do stuff on the earth that is miraculous, that is powerful, that is unfortunate, and there is no reason to spiritualize it. Okay? Revelation 12, 15 through 16. The serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away, swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. That's the earth swallowing it up. But I just wanted you to see both times that it says a river that came out of the dragon's mouth. Now, I absolutely believe that the dragon will also be doing bad things spiritually to those that are uh, the, the focal point here. But we've already got a specific expression of Satan on the earth acting like a powerful, like demigod kind of a guy, doing powerful stuff with wind and lightning and teleportation and uh, those kinds of things. So it's really not outside the frame of thought process that he could also open his mouth and water could come out of it in a really significant capacity. I'll just throw it this way. We know that the river of the water of life flows out of the throne of God. It flows out of the throne. And here, for every reason that last week I said, there's a good picture that you can find between comparing the Christ and the Antichrist. You want to recognize that God has allowed Satan a significant level of authority that allows there to be a measure of matchedness. Now, of course, it's completely unmatched. I mean, uh, totally, you know, dis whatever, disequal. God is God and there's no one like him. But any power and authority that exists in the universe is given by him. And so it's really not a, a weird thought to think that Satan can spew water out of his mouth like God's throne can spew water out of the feet of it or whatever, okay? Plus, Isaiah 59, 19, I think is poetic here. It tells us a little bit more. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. 
when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. It's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, exactly. All right. So now let's talk a little bit about this war between the dragon and the saints. We're going to cover, I think it's four, it might be five different aspects of the war. This first aspect I want you to think about, pay attention to the words, that way you're tracking with me. The key here is dragon and saints. Dragon and saints. The war between the dragon and the saints. The dragon and his angels will be on earth. Look at Revelation 12, verse 9. The great dragon was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. We want to be imagining a war between the dragon and his angels on the earth against the saints. Now that is not a war that we typically imagine at all. That is not one, that is not an aspect of the end time battle that we normally give any thought to at all. A giant serpent, Satan, dragon, and you just imagine whatever the angels were that are cast out of heaven, they're probably kind of big and ugly like him. Maybe they're not quite as big, maybe they're not quite as ugly, but you, just, you don't want to be imagining like a Furby. I mean, you want to be imagining a big, angry something. Okay, so Satan and a bunch of other Satan-like big ugly things get thrown to the earth and the word of the Lord is, oh, woe to you earth. Because now the devil and those giant angry devil-like angels, they're on the planet and they're mad and they know they've only got a little bit of time. The saints will face off with Satan. I don't mean every saint, but I definitely mean some. Believers, Christians, our kids will face off with Satan <coughs> face to face. With their eyes, they'll see him. They will face him boldly in person. Again, not every believer, but some humans on earth. <clears throat> Look at the dialogue a little bit later in Revelation 12. I just want us to see the primary point I'm trying to make here is that the fight is between human believers and Satan and the demons that were cast out of heaven with him here in the natural realm. Look at this, Revelation 12, 10 through 11. The accuser of our brothers was hurled down and they, the brothers, the saints, triumphed over him they triumphed over satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony they did not love their lives so much as to even shrink back from death these believers are not standing up just against the antichrist they'll do that too they're standing up against satan the dragon and it says that they didn't love their lives even so much as to shrink back from death there will be many who will be martyred by the dragon. Not the Antichrist. That's a whole other realm and a whole other different problem. There will be many who will be martyred by the dragon. And it will be victory for those that are martyred. It says they triumphed over him. The saints triumphed over Satan. How did they triumph over Satan? By dying. They triumphed by not giving in to his intimidation. They triumph by not giving in to his pain that he was inflicting. The cause, I mean, you just got to imagine how this is going to flesh out. Satan is 
he's not an enemy. He's the enemy. So any movie you've ever seen about a bad guy doing bad stuff, Satan is the guy that wrote the playbook. So you just want to imagine the types of torturous situations that are going to be occurring here. A giant dragon with great power, and there's two of you standing there, and he does bad things in your sight to the one next to you. And now says, bow. And the one that didn't just get their arms ripped off by a giant dragon say, no, I don't love my life even unto death. I belong to the lamb. Let me, let me tell you how this is going to go while you're doing whatever you're doing to me. I'm going to preach Jesus to you. This, they're standing before the dragon because the dragon is real and he'll be on earth doing real stuff like we've got pictures of him doing historically. We're not even saying this is going to be a new thing. This, this is just, it'll be the permanent state, at least for that period of time. He's going to be on the earth doing stuff. All right, now let's talk about the war between the beast and the lamb. All right, track with me. The beast, the Antichrist, the lamb, Jesus. Now we're, we're moving away from the battle between the dragon and the saints. Now we're doing the battle between the beast, the Antichrist, and the lamb. The world will embrace the Antichrist's war. Revelation 13, 4. Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? This is the world's perspective going, we are so on board with the beast and his war objective. The, the, there is a war objective and, and the, the majority of the earth will support the beast and his cause. Okay, they'll support the Antichrist. They'll support the Antichrist war. All right? But it even goes further than to just say the war. It's war specifically against the lamb by name with revelation of who the lamb is the war is against it's the antichrist identifying we're going to go against we're going to go to war against the bad guy who's with me and although all the nations say we're with you say and and uh, the antichrist himself will be able to communicate who is the bad guy and they will say it's jesus he's the bad guy let's go to war against him look what it says they, this is the nations, they will wage war against the lamb. The nations will wage war against the lamb. But the lamb will triumph over them because he's the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Look at Revelation 19, 19. There it is again. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together. It's these natural human, you know, humans with natural bodies on the earth. It's the humans, it's the nations, it's the people of the earth. <coughs> They're gathered together, all their armies. What are they ready to do? They're ready to wage war. Against who? Against what? To wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. They are waging war against Jesus on purpose. This isn't spiritual warfare. This is warfare warfare. This is the Antichrist and the whole league of those that are with him waging war against the Lamb. It's a real war, a real fight with battles. Lamb and beast. Jesus, he's like, well, they can wage war all they want against me. They can declare all they want. I'm going to come in. I'm going to triumph. Look at Revelation 19, 11 through 14. Jesus marches forth into war. It's not Jesus marches forth into spiritual do-goodingness. He is marching 
as a warrior to kill people in battle with a sword. As a warrior, because it's war. See, we got to understand there is a difference. Let me just take a little step back. The majority of the references of the word salvation in the Bible refer to God coming and helping Israel not die that day by bad guys. The majority of the references in the Bible to the word salvation refer to God coming and making sure this group of people didn't all get killed. He came and he saved them. It wasn't a spiritual thing. It was a physical thing. And by that physical act, their hearts were burning for God. And then in that comes the spiritual side. But it was, it was physical first. And so we got to understand there is an absolute physical uh, component to the idea that God saves. God brings salvation. Okay? And so we don't want to only make salvation spiritual because God actually comes and fights battles and saves people from dying. Okay? All right. So... I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and he wages war. The Antichrist wages war. He says, that's okay. I know how to wage war. I made up the word wage and war. I can do it. And I'm coming to wage it back at you, punk. Sticks the finger in the chest, pulls out the sword, and it's a bloodbath. Now let's talk about the war between the beast and the saints. The saints on the earth. Let's talk about the war between the Antichrist and the saints on the earth because we haven't even covered that yet. This is mostly the one that we're thinking of. When we think the end time drama (coughs) and we think war, we're mostly thinking about, oh man, it's going to be really hard because the Antichrist is going to be declaring war against the church, against the saints, and he will. But I just told you about two other dynamics of the war that are different than this one. Okay, let's now talk about the war between the beast, the Antichrist, and the saints, the church. The Antichrist against the church. At the very peak of Satan's rage, remember we told you a minute ago, his time is short, he's angry. At the very peak of his rage, the dragon goes off to wage war against the rest of the offspring, which is talking about the saints in that hour. Those who keep God's command and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. At the very peak of his rage, he is fueling the battle that is going to now empower the Antichrist. Okay? Now this is happening, just so you can get a little bit of time frame. This is happening, This him having the fullness of his rage and him going, he's like, I'm going to make war against the church. This happens at the same moment as what we're reading in the seals, trumpets, and bowls when we're reading the sixth seal and we're seeing now that there is war being waged against the earth. This, I'm sorry, the seals, the first and second seal of the seals. That's what I meant to say. The first and second seal in the seals series. Okay? When this happens... There is a war that is being birthed forth and it's simultaneous in timing to Satan being cast out of heaven and him having this war that he's now waging against the the saints on the earth. 
Okay, again, right there, he went off to wage war against the rest of the offspring. Well, that's the same language and the same timing that it says the Antichrist is waging war against the saints. So here it is. It was given, the Antichrist, was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. We're now looking at an Antichrist war against the church that's fueled by Satan. But fueled by Satan and done by Satan are, are different. We've already looked at he's on the earth as a giant dragon cutting people and doing stuff and doing bad stuff. He's also empowering the Antichrist. He's going, hey, you get working too. Get busy. Do what I'm doing, only do it like you would do it as, an, as a fully empowered governmental, governmental leader of the earth. Like you go and you attack too. He's given power to wage war against God's people and to conquer them. This all happens at the start of the Great Tribulation. Gave you a couple of verses there. But you want to get the timing down. You actually want to relate the subject of the Great Tribulation in as much as you think about the judgments. You want to think about the war. When you think about the Great Tribulation, you don't want to throw out the war as, as a minor part. It's at least as big of a deal. The war is going to be causing death. The war is going to be causing fear. The war is going to change everything. Natural climate, spiritual atmosphere, what you can do and what you can't do with your free time. The war is a really, really big component of the great tribulation. The three and a half year period where Jesus said, if it went on even a little bit longer, no person would live. If, if the times were not cut short... If they were not kept to three and a half years, if it were allowed to go on for four, five, six years, no humans would be left on the planet. A significant part of the Great Tribulation is the war component that we're looking at. All right? War against Israel and her deliverance. Now, this is another component of the war. Okay? The nation of Israel. <coughs> so you got... War between Satan and the church. You got war between the beast and the lamb. You got war between the beast and the church. And now you got war between Satan and Israel, the nation of Israel. This is fascinating and multi-layered and intriguing. We now move on to the battle that Israel is forced into. The nation of Israel, and not just the physical nation, but also the Jewish people across the earth. But you want to you lump those two things together. You definitely want to be envisioning the nation of Israel in a fight, because that will absolutely be reality, as well as everyone else who's Jewish that's not in Israel. But the nation of Israel is going to take it really hard, okay? War against Israel. Gave you several verses there about... The dragon going after Israel. The child in this picture is, uh, the, the mother is Israel. The child is Jesus. But it's more than just Jesus. It's the lineage of the woman. It's the, it's the, the birth, all the people that have come up out of the woman. And then specifically the male child, Jesus, who's kind of like the best of the, of the uh, downline. But it's both. I gave you a number of verses there that talk about <laughs> the dragon going after the woman during the end time drama. Israel is identified really clearly in there. I'm going to skip over that. You can look on it on your own. 
She's taken care of in the desert for 1260 days. This is a really interesting detail. And furthermore, I want you to see this. She is taken care of by God in the desert. Taken care of from who? She's fleeing to the desert from who? From the dragon. The dragon is coming after Israel. And God says, no, 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 not the apple of my eye. I got this. And he brings the nation out into the wilderness. And it says God himself protects them for 1260 days. It's the exodus. We're supposed to be seeing, once again, God showing up powerfully. You just imagine the nations that saw Israel in the desert and go, man, who, who is that people group out there? I don't know, but they've got like a big cloud over them. Fire, pillar, cloud, it's like intense. And don't mess with them because you'll just do it. will not go good for you. God is going to do that Exodus wilderness protection thing again for Israel specifically. Israel will be protected in the wilderness for the three and a half year period of the Great Tribulation. So there's going to be a significant chunk. It won't be all of them, but there'll be a significant chunk of the Jews in Israel proper that are brought out into the wilderness somewhere, either in Israel or outside of Israel. Probably the Sinai Desert makes as much sense as anything. And they will be protected in the wilderness for the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, protected from Satan himself. Satan will want to come and go, I am finally going to deal with this nation that God says he loves, that he birthed his Messiah through, that he's trying to bring all of redemptive history through this nation. I'm going after this nation. And God says, no, you won't. I'm going to protect the nation of Israel in the desert for 1260 days. It's three and a half years. It's the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation provided for in the desert. Just give you uh, Jeremiah 32, I'm sorry, 31 verse 2 in uh, relationship to this same uh, time period and, and verse. Jeremiah says it this way. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. This is during the Great Tribulation. God giving rest to the nation of Israel while the rest of the nations are in the greatest tribulation and turmoil ever. Israel has been in tribulation from the start. Now she will be given rest in the desert by her God during the period that all of the war is happening, all the aggression. This is going to win Israel over. I mean, they're going to they're gonna go, oh my gosh, you really are God. You really are good. I mean, this is secular Israel will give themselves over. Orthodox Israel, many of them will give themselves over. And that won't all happen in a moment. There's going to be all sorts of process and people getting saved throughout and some that won't get saved until they see Jesus actually appear in the sky. They'll hold out even until that point. But this whole period, it's God wooing his people showing up and being like, you can just imagine how many Jews growing up going today, a decade ago, a hundred years ago, growing up going, where is the God of the Torah? Like, where is he? We see it. We've heard the stories. Where the heck is he? He is going to show up in full force as the God of the Exodus. He's going to show himself mighty again on Israel's behalf in the desert. This is going to tick Satan off so much. 
Because this is like, he knows how important this people group is to, to, the, uh, to God. This is the very people group he is going to want to go after and the very people group that God's going to protect. Look at this verse in Exodus 19.4. is a parallel verse to Revelation 12.14 related to the way that God is going to display himself mighty on their behalf. Look at this. The Exodus 19.4 verse says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. You saw what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. The language of the Exodus and the way that God interacted with the people. God is saying, I carried you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. That's the Exodus. Look what it says in Revelation 12. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. It's the exact same language. It's the exact same picture. It's God saying, I'm going to bring you up out of that territory. I'm going to bring you to the place I prepared for you in the, in the wilderness, and I'm going to take care of you like I did in the Exodus. The supernatural deliverance. So then when it says, the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing up the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth, this is the exact kind of language. It's almost like reverse of the Red Sea. Okay, think about what happened at the Red Sea. The Red Sea, God parted standing water. There was a body of water there, a big old sea. He parted the sea in order to protect the people of Israel. That's impossible. It's a miracle. It can't happen. It's impossible. And God did it. Now, Satan says, okay, fine. I'm going to spew water like a river and I'm going to try to consume that people group. And God says, no, kind of like what we did with the Exodus, I'm in charge of the elements. The earth opens up its mouth and swallows the river that Satan has launched. I just want us to not, I don't want you to have any reason to unnecessarily spiritualize this river. Because we've already got direct references to God doing stuff with water to protect his people. And now we've got the anti-God. We've got Satan at the end of the age. And now he's trying to muster the elements. He's already done it. He did it with wind. He did it with, uh, um, what was the other, fire, lightning. He's already done it. Now he's trying to do it again. He's going to spew forth a river to take out this people. And it's like God goes, no, no, in fact... I'm not going to let that river take them out. I'm going to swallow it up like Korah's rebellion. I'm going to open the mouth of the earth and swallow the water. You can't have Israel. And by the way, you're done. I'm going to take her out into the desert to a place I prepared for 1260 days. You can't even touch her at all. It's just done. This was your last effort. He takes her to the desert. Okay, let's break up into groups. Luke, how many groups we got tonight? Four groups of seven. And who are my group leaders? One, two, three, and Luke, okay? Uh, so Luke, you can stay. Well, why don't you come up just a little bit? Why don't you come over here? That'll be easier. Luke Frenberg over here in the corner. Caitlin right there. Any in the back. Groups of seven. Go ahead and get into groups of seven, and uh, then we'll come back and do some Q&A. All right, we're going to go to group questions. So I'll do my best to uh, repeat the questions for those that are watching online or who join us later. So group questions, group questions. Okay, why don't we start over here uh, with uh, Luke's group. Okay, so we think of the traditional wars. Hey guys, shh, 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 shh. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a multifaceted question. All right, so the question was specifically in relationship, at least where you started. Uh, Roman numeral three, the war between the dragon and the saints. And when we think of a normal war uh, on earth, we think of two opposing sides with weapons. They come against each other. Well, there's a lot going on here between the dragon and the saints, at least in that specific aspect of the, uh, the fight. We don't see specific reference that I'm aware of anywhere where it talks about uh, saints fighting those demons that are with Satan or fighting the dragon with weaponry. We don't see any reference to that. I guess there's room for it, maybe. We don't see any reference, so it would be difficult to get dogmatic about that point. Um, I think that the whole fight in that sense is if you're five foot eight and you're fighting a dragon that's 60 feet tall, you're, there's no fight. You're gonna lose that one. So that's where it's like, I think in that sense, it's the, the, the reason that there are even two sides is because the saints are standing for righteousness. Now, second point of the question, will there be any points where, where the church is in war with guns and stuff against the Antichrist regime. Yes, but not as the church. It will be believers that are in whatever fight it is that's happening, and it won't necessarily be like the church is fighting against the Antichrist. It's like humans are fighting against the forces that are coming against them trying to take over their city. And some of the ones that are arm in arm against the Antichrist regime will be lost people. Some of them will be saved. They're going to be from the perspective of you're not taking my hometown. And it, it won't necessarily be the church is like, okay, gather all the Christians, give them guns. We're going to do a, a, an assassination uh, attempt on the Antichrist. I mean, it's, although he does die and come back to life. But, but after, after, this, after he's Antichrist in fullness, and he's, he's, everybody knows who he is, at least all the Christians, I don't think that the, the picture is like the church forming an army to fight against the Antichrist. I think it's way more going to be groups, neighborhoods, nations fighting to keep oppression out of their city. And it's not so much that it's the church against the Antichrist as it is freedom against oppression. Uh, you know, and so uh, I and I could be wrong on that point. I just I don't think that the main focus of those wars is going to be the church is saying, okay, now it's time to go kill a bunch of people with the mark of the beast. I don't think that's going to be the the objective. I think the the war factor from a Christian perspective, I think it's primarily going to come to, hey, can we keep our block from infection? Can we keep our country, our state, our you know, uh, but it's going to be more from a protective standpoint than it is to like, you know, fight off the Antichrist as a, you know, evil. So does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, question here. All right. So, <coughs> Brad, why are you teaching these strange things? What do we do with them? Okay. So the question was, what's the current application of session 71? I have no idea. I, I, I don't even know that there is one. I can tell you that there's a lot about the Bible 
that isn't the, 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 that the primary intention of that particular verse, lesson, whatever, is not necessarily for application in the moment, but understanding about game plan and purpose. And, and related to the end times, just let's, I, this is, this is going to be helpful. Remember 150 plus chapters on the subject called eschatology. Probably nothing in the Bible that has that much content as a, as a subdivision of theology. Okay? I mean, that's just a ton of Bible on a subject. Okay? We're used to, a lot from our American mindset, we're used to the, the, sub, the thought process. You get taught the Bible so you can go do something with the information and live different. There's a place for that. But arguably, the largest amount of content devoted to a theology is in the future. And it's not for practical application today. It's for understanding of the real fight tomorrow. It just so happens to be the most important fight. It just so happens to be one of the most important subjects in human history. But it's not primarily about application. And we, we've got a thought process that's looking at the Bible to teach me something so I can do something, think something different, live different, be different. And that is part of what the Bible's for. But that is, we, we need to not be limiting the way that we approach the Word of God. Well, this Bible verse doesn't mean anything to me. The entire book of Numbers now no, has no value. I mean, it's like, well, how is, what is my application to the, the, you know, the lineage of this family? Well, no application. That's not what it's there for. So there's a lot of information that's in the Word that serves deep purpose, but it might not at all be for the sake of the Bible study so that everybody can rally around a, a life principle that we can now, you know, fruit of the Spirit, like change in our life kind of a thing. That's, that's not... We, so the reason I'm, I'm going on, I'm kind of harping on this point is, uh, I don't think this is where you were coming from, but I think it's where the church in America often comes from, is the word of God only has value where there's a practical live my best life now application. And live my best life now is a portion, not even the main point of the Bible. It's a portion of what's supposed to happen. So it's a good point to just kind of whatever. All right. Um, okay, over here. Sure. So uh, the, the question really, in a nutshell, is uh, how do we know what powers Satan has and what he doesn't have in relationship to what his capacities are when he's on the earth during the Great Tribulation? So, I mean, this is a very exacting sort of a, a thought process. Uh, and and uh, Luke even brought up the point about, okay, the false prophet can call down fire. Well, what we're told multiple times is both the false prophet and the Antichrist are given power. But they're given that power by Satan. Satan can't give power Satan doesn't have. Satan has been given significant authority. So in relationship to the Job account, um, we, we don't want to... I think it would be a wrong lesson to learn that before Satan would ever replicate any bad thing on the planet of like he did with Job or of any sort of bad thing, that every single time he has to get permission to do it. I think that there's a realm of authority that has been given to Satan. I mean, he's called the God of this age. 
I mean, you know, it's like there's, there's a realm of authority that has been given to him that until he's locked up and put into prison, he has that authority. So much so that he's even able to give it to the Antichrist and to the false prophet. And so what exact can, what exactly can he do or can't do? Honestly, I think is the wrong question. I, I think we want to be looking at he has significant power and authority and he's going to do stuff. Which stuffs? I don't know. Uh, but stuffs. He'll be doing power stuffs because he's been given significant authority and power in this age to do stuff. And so uh, whether he'll be doing the lightning one or the wind one, I, I think that's not the point. I think the point is, hey, here are some examples of some stuff he has done. We know he has significant authority and power. Like, Big time. So we should be expecting him to do stuff. And here's some examples of some stuff he's done in the past, but it's not necessarily that he'll replicate those or that he's limited to those. Uh, so that, that kind of makes sense. Okay, uh, and then uh, back here. And worship leader, you can come on up. Yeah, the work that, that the father is doing to be the father of Israel at the end of the story is awesome. I mean, to show himself as awesome, mighty father in charge, almighty God. You just, every name in the Bible for God, Israel is going to see it in the last days. I mean, they're going to see it in a short minute. And so really, even in the same way that Satan is filled with fury for he knows his time is short, you could turn all those uh, verbs and adjectives and stuff flip them and do God's version. God is filled with love because he knows these three and a half years are his. And so he's going to like be showing himself mighty in a fast and furious sort of a way as the, uh, as Satan is raging uh, with great fury. Um, so great, great point there. Okay. Well guys, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful. And as we're going through this study, you guys are learning your, you're, uh, you're seeing what you believe and you're, you're challenging your, your theology and you're, you're looking in the word. And I, I just want to encourage you again, don't believe anything that you can't see in the word, but if you see it in the word, believe it, not what you think is right. And furthermore, as we have dialogue, if you hear an idea, whether it's me or in your group or a friend or a podcast, you hear an idea and you go, I don't like that idea. You had better not like it with Bible verses and not not like it because of some other sentimental reason. Seems interesting, seems odd, not what I was taught before. None of that matters. Let's talk about the Bible with the Bible. And so as I present ideas, even on Saturday nights, I believe wholeheartedly I'm presenting a bunch of ideas that are ones possibly you've not heard before. I'm not asking you to just believe them. I'm seeing. I'm saying, look at the word, but don't not believe them because it sounds weird. Use Bible verses to back up or disprove your ideas. That's that's critical thinking. That's that's a theologian. That's showing yourself approved as a Berean. And so I want to encourage you. Don't just believe what I say. Look at what the word says. And if you come to the same conclusion I come to from the Bible verses, well then believe it. If you come to a different conclusion from those Bible verses or different Bible verses, believe that. But don't, don't just throw something out because it's not what you think is right. That doesn't matter at all.
This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.